Hear the word of the Lord from James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but it's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. I hope everyone is doing well. You know, I woke up this morning with just a deep longing to share with all of you. I so desperately want all of us as a church family and followers of Jesus to really know God in such a way that it delights us. That our desires are so richly met in God that it drives the rest of our lives. Guys, my hope coming to preaching, coming to you this morning, preaching to you this morning, is that we might see and savor Jesus and rest and know the delight and peace that comes from knowing we are completely known, fully forgiven, deeply loved and called to purpose by faith alone. 
If you get that and you know that, there's a delight, there's a sense of peace, there's a rest deep in your soul that begins to make its way through your heart and life. It melts away the cold places, it softens the hard places, it establishes righteousness deep and rooted in you. A righteousness that is not ours by our works or by our deeds, but it's a gift that God made possible through Jesus. Guys, in these troubled times, I want you anchored in that hope, assured in that hope, unmoved from that hope as you live out the days of your life. As your week progresses, as you experience highs and lows, valleys and peaks, I would want your constant delight to be in knowing your creator, knowing that he knows you, forgives you, loves you, and calls you to purpose. Guys, I just wanted to start off, that was so burning inside of me, I just wanted to start off our whole sermon that way. Because honestly, as we dive into James, we're going to dive initially right into this kind of a, almost a historically controversial statement that James made. It's a huge statement that people like Martin Luther really, really struggled with. It basically says, faith without works is dead. Our, or as my good old buddy Rich Mullins, a famous songwriter, Christian songwriter says, faith without works is as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Now, if you guys got that reference, it'll date you, because most people here are like, what? Anybody know Faith Without Works? Thank you, thank you. It's a good song. So that song got me thinking. What are some other useless things? So we'll play a quick game right where you're at. I'll put something on the screen, and I want you guys to think to yourself, is this useless or not? Fake hair for golfers. Useless or not? Useful. Useless. This is for Ryan here. I made this, I had this one up for Ryan. All right, next one. A DVD rewinder. Useless. <laughs> if you think this is useful, I'll sell it to you for only 10 bucks. Next one. <laughs> Useless. All right, next one. Yeah, it's arguable. <laughs> Keeping my kid in the potty. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> Useless. I don't know. If I had some new Jordans, I don't know. <laughs> All right, next one. Motorized ice cream cone. <laughs> Useful. Is it so much work to twist your cone? <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one, next one. The Pet Rock. Who remembers the Pet Rock when that came out? Anybody? Kinda. All right, next one. Goldfish Walker. <laughs> Young's about to buy that right now. <laughs> next. <laughs> Useless. Next one. Once again, if you want a DVD rewinder, I'll sell you the Diet Water, too. <laughs> Next one. Faith minus works. Anybody? Useless? Useful? James says useless. And let's dive into that. James is saying that while faith alone saves us, it's a faith of a certain kind. So that's what James' argument's gonna be here today. Here's what he's gonna say. It's a faith which produces works that saves us. 
The works do not save us, but a faith that does not produce works, and we'll define what works means later, is a faith that will only deceive and cannot lead us into the fullness of life with our Father. So this is the outline of the text that we just read. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works cannot save. Faith without works is ineffective. And faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. James 2 is the center of this book. Chapter 2 is the center of the book. And two words summarize the message of the book of James really well. It's two words, genuine faith. That's what James 1 was about two weeks ago. Troubles, problems, tribulations, sorrows, struggles show genuine faith. Last week we saw that genuine faith is both a hearer and doer of the word. James gets this rap for being the New Testament book that's all about works. But that's not what it is. He has a lot to say about works, but his primary emphasis is about faith. What is genuine faith? What does it look like? And this is the very center of this message. And before we dive really deep into what James is saying about genuine faith, I would like to deal with some seeming contradiction that people seem to bring up between James and Paul. Martin Luther strongly felt and really struggled with this issue to the point where Martin Luther didn't want to read the book of James. If you know anything about church history, the battle cry of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. That we're declared righteous, that's the word justification, that's what it means. It means God declares us righteous apart from anything we do by faith alone, in faith alone, in Jesus. And the Catholic opponents of the, of the Reformation were quick to point out, well, what about James 2.24? They said, we have a simple, irrefutable answer to your battle cry of justification of faith alone. James 2.24 says, you see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And there seems to be this contradiction. Uh, if you pick up any book that critiques Christianity, they, t- they kind of point to this as one of the top contradictions in the Bible. So I'm going to give you this morning really quickly three reasons why James and Paul do not contradict each other. Number one, the word justified used is in two different senses. In other words, they use the word justified in two different manners. First, James and Paul are using the word justified in two different senses. James is using it in the sense of demonstrate or show. Jesus uses it in the same way in Matthew's gospel. He says wisdom is justified by her children. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that wisdom is declared righteous by her children. He simply means that wisdom is proved by her fruits. That's the way James is using this term. Paul's using the term justification to mean to declare righteous. It's a courtroom term. So Paul is to declare righteous. For James, it's to show or demonstrate one is righteous or one's faith. You see two different ways of using the same word, justification. The second argument is it has to- two totally different audiences. Paul and James wrote to two, two totally different audiences. Paul was largely dealing with pagan people who had no idea about the Jewish God. James, by contrast, as we saw at the beginning of our series in chapter one, is right to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience who had all the right knowledge about God, but there was a big disconnect. Remember last week we talked about the whole double living thing. And then three, there's really only one relationship between faith and works. So two different audiences, two different sets of the word, and important to know that James and Paul actually teach the same relationship between faith and works. The other epistle besides the book of Romans is the book of Ephesians that we often turn to when we talk about Paul and his doctrine of grace. And so when you come to the one of the best loved Bible verses of all of salvations, Ephesians 2.8, a lot of you guys probably have this one by memory. It says this, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So both Paul and James teach that good works are not the basis of our relationship with God. They're the necessary result of our relationship with God, of a right relationship with God. So they teach precisely the same thing. So as we dive into the text, let me define a couple words for us. First one I want to talk about is faith. What is faith? Faith trusts and faith obeys God. We'll talk about more about why it has to be defined that way as we make our way through this text. But faith is trusting God and obeying God. If it doesn't trust God, and if it doesn't seek to obey him imperfectly, it's not there. But that's James' argument. He's saying faith trusts and faith obeys. And then what is works? Is James talking about the Torah? Is he talking about the law? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Earlier in chapter one, you saw James talking about caring for the orphans and widows. We also saw him earlier talking about him speaking of doing what the word says. In the earlier reading, in chapter, in earlier in chapter two, it says doing the royal law. I love that term, the royal law of Jesus saying, love others as you love yourself. So what James is arguing is what works is, is doing what Jesus says to do. It's works is living a life of loving God and loving others. So that's how we're going to define faith is trusting and obeying God and works as living a life that loves God and loves others. So hear me, my people. My argument will not be, cannot be, and will never be that you must add works to your faith to validate your faith. But rather legitimate faith leads to an ongoing love of God and an ongoing love of others that even though it's imperfectly executed, it is still there. Do you hear that? With that said, let's walk into this. Faith without works is useless. It cannot save, it is ineffective, and it is dead. Let's start with that first. Faith without works is useless. So if you say you have faith, if you say you trust God, you say you're gonna obey God, and your life is marked by loving God and you're loving others, there's no movement in that, it's useless. Look at the illustration starting in verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. A brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? What good is that? You see, where there is perceived faith with no works, it's useless, and God does not minister through both the one in abundance and the one in need. So when we say that faith without works is useless, in James' illustration, that goes to both the one who has and the one who hasn't. For the poor man, he receives blessings from the Lord. And for the destitute man who is unable to eat and unable to clothe himself and his family, he is ministered to, encouraged, loved on by God via the wealthy man, the, uh, the wealthy one of the saints. And then the wealthy man also is used by God in a profound way to minister to those who are hurting among them. You see, I think that where faith isn't active, things start to really break down in a hurry. Here's what I mean by that. You who have been blessed... You've not been blessed for your comfort. You've not been blessed for your own security. You've not been blessed for your own prosperity. You've been blessed that you can show your faith to others by blessing them. You who feel low, you who feel downtrodden, you can also show faith by receiving God's blessings and trusting him for your provision. See, what happens when faith is static, when it's not moving, then it's dying. Our faith always needs to be producing. Our faith always needs to be pouring outward. Our faith always needs to be going and moving or we will die. The Dead Sea is an illustration that I've shared before, but it fits well in this situation. Who knows why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea? Anybody? Anybody? 
Too much salt. That's correct. Because its salinity level is so high that nothing can live in it. Why? Because it's at such a low elevation point and water flows into it, bringing its salt, its salt into it, but it has no exit. Water flows in through the different rivers and tributaries and creeks and whatever. Water flows in, but it stays in. It doesn't flow out. So when the water evaporates, it leaves its silt and salt behind. It's the Dead Sea because water flows in it, but it doesn't flow out. Guys, when, for us, when we receive blessing, when we receive the good news of God, when we are moved by the Spirit, guys, but when we don't flow out, when our faith is static, when our faith doesn't have works, it becomes ineffective. I mentioned how James copies a lot of his teaching from James, uh, from Jesus last week. Obviously the best person to copy from. And I believe this section here from James is in particular mirroring Matthew 25, 40 through 43. If you know this text, Jesus is telling the parable about separating out the sheep and the goats and saying to the sheep, hey, feed me, you cared for me, you visited me in prison, you came. Then to the goat, he said, you never did that. Here's what it says. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then you will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. Clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not, you did not look after me. So Jesus' point and James' point is that we experience the grace and mercy of God as we rest in that saving faith alone, our hearts begin to be transformed and changed so that our love for God starts to translate into love for people. It's not a love for people that makes us love God, but rather a love for God that translates into a love for people. Look right at me, guys. An an imperfectly love executed for people. Because guys, honestly, people are hard. And there are some people I don't like. I mean, like, is there anybody else, right, people you don't like out there? Are you a type of person? Yeah. That's reality, right? That's just, that's just hope. I know that's just not me. There are people I don't get along with. The good news is that it doesn't start with my love for them. It wasn't dependent on my love for other people. That first got me to love God. It starts with my love for God, and that changes my heart so I can then love people. And I thank God that's the case because I don't know how many people could love me if it wasn't for God. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, God. See, here's the scary thing, guys. Faith, it says, without works cannot save us. It's mentioned in a couple places. It says this in 17 to 25. It says, in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. So I love how James does this here. He interjects an antagonist into his letter. You know, I don't know if he, James knows this guy personally. I don't know if he just made up a guy. Maybe he made up a guy, or maybe there really is a guy. He might have been like, oh, Billy came up with this hypothetical argument here, and I use the name Billy a lot. That's kind of my go-to. And this argument is created, and James is saying, well, you say this, I say this, and Billy is saying this. And this is what James is like, trying to dissect all of this up for us. He's saying, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So this antagonist James is introducing to this argument is saying that faith and works are separate. They're two different things. So if you get those two things together, it's, too, it's dangerous. So you have works, James, but I, I have faith that the Lord will save me. So this antagonist, this Billy, is saying, but I have faith, so I don't need your works. That's the argument. 
But then James is arguing back, and I love how he does this. I wonder if he does this at home by himself, like arguing back and forth, or he really does have a Billy in his congregation at some point. But he's saying, James says, like, okay, you have faith. James is saying, faith, great, you have it, show me. Show me you have that faith. James is creating this, an, an argument with this person and kind of bring up the arguments maybe we have. He's saying, oh, I have faith, I have faith. And then James is saying, well, then show me your faith. Let me make it simple for you guys. Most of you guys are sitting in chairs. There are people in here who are sitting in chairs. And there's an aspect of faith for you by sitting in that chair. You can look at a chair and believe in your head that the chair is safe to sit on. You can look at it how it's made, you know, what it's made of. You can see that other people are sitting in chairs and you can think, well, I believe this chair can support you. But here's James' argument. James is saying, hey, you're saying you believe that chair will hold you. Well, then have a seat. I'll show you I believe the chair will hold me by having a seat. So James' argument is this, have a seat, I'll show you I trust the chair, I'll sit down. Then he moves from this idea of show me faith without works. What does that even look like? How do you show me faith without works? What is that? Now I love how James continues to argue with himself here. His next argument by this antagonist is, well, I intellectually, mentally believe was doctrinally true about Jesus. So James immediately goes to where we want to go. Well, I intellectually believe what's true about Jesus. I believe the physics of the chair being able to hold me. I can see that it's soundly made. I can see the structure of the chair is good. So I don't need to sit down because I can clearly see the chair will hold me. James dives into the same argument. You believe God is one? Well, you do, but well, the demons believe that there's a chair and they shudder. Matt Chandler says this, and I love this. He says, intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. I'll say that again. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. James is saying, you believe God is one? Congratulations. But even the demons believe that. And they're not children of God. The demons believe that. The demons have better theology than you. The demons know more than you. They know more than me. They know the better more than you do. They know the Bible better than you do. They know the Bible than I do. But I have this, what I have waiting for me by faith alone is something they cannot fathom. I have a relationship with God Almighty and I'm co-heir alongside Jesus. They may have correct doctrine, but it's not saving doctrine. Do you understand that it's knowledge and assent does not equate to salvation. Faith without works is ineffective. Finally, guys, this idea of faith and works being two these separate things have no business being anywhere near one another is James is going, okay, show me your faith then. And then secondly, don't just go intellectually. You have to sit in the chair. If you're going to say you believe the chair will hold, you have to sit in. And then finally, he finds biblical support showing that the unity of the Bible is that faith alone saves, but not that faith is alone. He uses two illustrations. And the first one shouldn't surprise us at all. The first one is Father Abraham. He had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm going to say that every single time I mention Abraham in the Bible. I'm going to sing that song out loud. So Abraham showing up in this text as a defense for James' argument being primarily written to Jews should not surprise us. But I love that he doesn't just use Abraham. He uses somebody else. Who does he use as an example? Who does he use? Rahab, the prostitute. How important and beautiful is this woman in this lineage of our salvation? I love that Rahab is here. So what you have in this argument that Abraham revealed he trusted God by sitting down in the chair. Abraham had faith. God said to Abraham, hey, that promise I gave you, that promised heir that you waited forever for, I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham, by faith, put his son on the donkey, headed up the hill. Even when his son even said, dad, where's the ram? Abraham said, the Lord will provide. 
So with trust and hope, Abraham goes up to the mountain, binds his son, and he's prepared to sacrifice when the Lord says, stepped in and said, don't do it. Abraham trusted God. He took up the son up to the mountain and he trusted, he, he, we knew that he trusted God by his actions. We knew he trusted God by taking Isaac up the hill, by binding him. We knew he was fully obedient to God, trusting that God is able, trusting that God will make a way. We see that he, it wasn't just that he said he had faith, we saw his action showing that faith. So Abraham is not a surprise here. Um, and even after this moment, guys, after this moment, Abraham's faith of his life just totally ships around. Earlier to this moment, Abraham made some really stupid decisions that I can imagine Sarah, his wife, like, never letting him live down. You know, he made decisions like lying about Sarah and saying, you know, hey, this is my sister, so that in order for his life to be spared. Could you imagine every future argument Abraham ever had with Sarah then on? Abraham would never win one. But after this moment, Abraham changes. After this, this expression of faith, Abraham doesn't make those stupid mistakes anymore. And he walks more fully in the faith that he professed. Then we have Rahab. Rahab is actually one of the names I want to name my daughter if I had a daughter. Gina was like, no, that's never going to happen. But that actually is one of the names. Rahab is one of my favorite biblical characters. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And women were already treated as not even second-class citizens at that time. And what would a prostitute be if just a woman um, at that time was a, was a second-class citizen? Could you imagine the abuse she had to endure? The longings of her heart. Then here comes the spies being sent from Joshua to scout out Jericho. And they say, we're going to conquer this massive fortified city. And Rahab caught wind of these spies, these people of God, this salvation that was coming, and for some reason started helping them. Maybe she longed for a change. Maybe she longed for a government overthrow. Maybe she longed to be a different, have a different status, be a different person. She longed for something and something in her heart connected with these spies, with these people of Israel. And so when she got one of these spies, she started helping out. And then when she had the opportunity, she hid them and put her faith, her small faith in this God of this people. And her step seemingly so small was, was the only thing that needed to show that her faith was so big. She hid them. Rahab finds herself in the lineage of our Savior and therefore is in our family. And it was just a small step. But faith without works cannot save you. Can I tell you this, my people? If you're sitting here today and there are no steps, if you're sitting here today you have no works, if you're sitting here today that I'm a Christian with no love for God that leaves you to, even though imperfectly, love other people, maybe you should stop calling yourself a Christian. I love you and I want you to know that, but maybe you should stop calling yourself a Christian and maybe you should stop and see what faith with works looks like. James is saying that the word of God is saying that there are those who claim faith, they claim to be Christians, they're connected to the community of faith, they're active in the church, they're even supporters of the faith, but they do not love God and does not led to them loving others. I was telling someone in the church the other day who was shocked and amazed at the actions and words that were coming out of people who profess Christianity. And I told them this, I said, you know, maybe 50 to 60% of people in America who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who profess being Christians, may actually be Christians. And that's on a good day. I just threw out a number. I said, maybe 50%, maybe 56% of people who profess Christ, who go to church actively, who are part of a membership of a church, maybe 50 to 60% of those people I actually believe are Christians. And that's, like I said, on a good day. That statement helped them because, honestly, they couldn't comprehend how followers of Jesus could act and speak the way these people did. Faith without works is 
it's useless, it's, it's ineffective. I said earlier, James is about a person reading, living out, living out a genuine faith. And this is what God's inviting you to through the book of James. He's inviting you into the richest, most full life imaginable. He's not trying to steal anything from you. He's inviting you into all there is to have. I have a very picky eater in my family. And man, it's sometimes very frustrating to have a picky eater. He looks at me sometimes like I'm inviting him to eat poison when I'm giving him some delicious food. I'm offering him dessert or a steak or something delicious. And every time he gets to look at it, especially if it's something new, he looks at it, he studies it, he sniffs it, he moves it around. Then he's like, nah, I don't want it. And you can think me caring for him, me feeding him all the time would convince him that I had his best intentions in mind. But he's like, no, you're feeding me poison. I know you are, dad. And, but what I've been doing is I've been inviting my son to enjoy the wonderful world of food and deliciousness. And this is what's happening here. God is saying, when God says don't, when God says do, when God says pursue me, it's an invitation. It's saying what I want, what you need, what you desire, what is good is found following this. And I know we're nervous like my son about eating new foods, but God wants us to take in and fully enjoy the life he's called us to live. A life of purpose and delight. Guys, when we say faith without works is dead, yes, it sounds like a harsh statement, but what God is saying, no, live a life of faith with works because that is a full life. That is a meaningful life. That is a life that you are meant to live. This is a strong statement. And she's twice in this passage. What he's arguing is that faith without works is not merely outwardly inoperative, but rather inwardly dead. He's saying faith without works isn't faith. I heard Shaquille O'Neal in an interview once talking about his real father and his biological father. One man gave his biological material, the other man gave his love and life. And that's why he calls one his real father. A father who doesn't live and act like a father isn't a father in my book. A father in my book sacrifices, loves, adores, teaches, affirms, encourages, models, and so much more. I never had to doubt my dad because my dad lived his life sacrificially for me and my sister. Everything he did, I saw. I never had to question whether, he might not have been the most expressive verbally as a a man, a very kind of old school stoic Korean man. He never, might not have said so often, I love you, I love you, I love you. But man, he loved us and I saw it every day by how hard he worked, how little he took, how much he gave and everything he did was for me and my sister. He lived out his calling. So we had no question that his, his life, his calling, his faith was real. Very much like Jesus showed his love for us by dying upon the cross, his faith and identity was revealed and affirmed by his life and his action. My people, are you living out your faith? Faith without works is useless, ineffective, and dead. You are called to not be the Dead Sea, but instead be bringers of life to others. There's nothing, please hear me very well. There's nothing that shows the world the beauty out of everything God could have chosen. God could have chosen um, majestic animals. God could have chosen dragons flying around with unicorns. God could have chosen falling stars and quasars. And God could have chosen the Grand Canyon. He could have chosen diamonds. He could have chosen anything he wanted to show his glory, to really get a picture of who he is. But instead of all of that, instead of all of that, he says, I'm going to use imperfect people. I'm going to use people like you. I want you to show the world my glory. And the way I want you to do that is the way you live out your faith. 
So get this, get this. Out of all those amazing things that I just said, out of all the glorious things I just listed, the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most incredible, the most breathtaking, the most awe-inspiring, the most God thing we can do is to live out the faith God has blessed us with. In other words, do we love him and love people well? Out of all of that, he chooses that to glorify him. Guys, I know we're imperfect at this. Guys, I know we don't know often how to do it well. But God's called you to do it. Are you feeding the hungry? Are you caring for the orphans and the widows? Are the ones without clothes getting clothes? Are the lost being found? Are the hurt being healed? Are the ones who are fatherless being shown they have a father? Are you freeing the captive and bringing hope to the oppressed? My people, show your faith by your works. Show that it exists. Let them see it because when they see it, they can worship this Jesus and fall in love with him too. They can delight in this God that's called us to such faith. May we live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. God, that you loved us so much that not only do you know us, God, not only do you love us, but you forgive us and you call us into this incredible relationship with you. God, that as we live out the faith that you've called to, as we trust and as we obey, as we love you and love people, God, that's what you've called us to, this beautiful dynamic, this, this always moving relationship. God, you call us to always be receiving and to be flowing out. Thank you for bringing us into such a system, such a relationship, such an identity. God, will you melt our hearts when we don't care for people? God, will you encourage us to still love others well when, when we struggle, when we know that even though it's imperfect and we, can't, we don't often know the exact best way to love people, God, will you still move us to do so? And God, will you show us that we'd rather make mistakes over loving people than to not love at all? God, will you move in our hearts? God, let us be people who truly show our faith by our works. In Jesus' name, amen.